Hey everybody, this is Stuart. Uh, you may have noticed that our release schedule is a little bit has been a little bit screwy for the last few months. Uh, that is true. Some of that is because we had a bunch of weirdly timed live episodes. Some of that is because we're having some uh, issues in Sea Grant not related to Teach Me About the Great Lakes that are sucking up a lot of time. And so there's just a little bit less time for podcasting right now. But we're not going anywhere. We've got a lot of episodes planned for the summer. And I think... I think we're going to start getting back on our regular first and third of every month episode, first and third Monday of every month episode, uh, probably starting at the third Monday of July, or if not, starting with the first Monday of August. Um, and then we've got a great summer and a great fall plan and, and uh, full speed ahead. Uh, it's just been a challenging couple of months for reasons not related to the podcast, but don't worry, podcast isn't going anywhere. Uh, in fact, the more challenging things get at work, frankly, the more we need the podcast to give us something fun to do. Uh, so we will get there. But uh, we appreciate your patience. Don't stress. We're not going anywhere. And, um, and uh, of course, keep grading those lakes. With that, we're going to present an encore presentation of a conversation that Carolyn and I had with uh, Francie Cuthbert. Uh, back in September of 2021, uh, we've got sort of plovers on the mind this time of year. And uh, so we this was a kind of a fun chat we had. Um, Francie called in from a, a boat, actually, not uh, not like uh, out of the water, but like a, um, a shuttle, a ferry. Excuse me. She was on a ferry and she called in to talk about plover biology and things like that as part of we had this little plover explosion. Um, when I first learned about Monty and Rose, frankly, is when it happened. And, and so uh, this was a good conversation. We enjoyed having it. And since it's plover time of year, or plover time of year is approaching, uh, we thought it'd be a great thing to re-air. So thank you, everybody. We're coming back soon. Don't worry. And enjoy this encore presentation. Hello. We have a random popper. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Ciao. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder-working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I am so happy to be here. We are joined today by our Canada correspondent, Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, how's it going? Carolyn's doing well. Um, it's possible that she will lose her status as Canada correspondent because she hasn't lived in Canada for a very long time, but that's okay. Well, that's fine. Then I'm joined today by our Plover correspondent, Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, what is up? <laughs> Not much, Stuart. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thanks. We are here to talk Plovers again um, because you can never talk enough Plovers, so that's good. But before we do, we got a little bit of business to take care of. So let's take care of some business. And the first uh, item of business is this. It's time to go nominate someone for the Lakeys, right? Uh, you remember, the Lakeys are possibly not the least prestigious Great Lakes-based podcast award ceremony that there is. Um, and that's going to be an award show we do at the end of the year. But we need your nominations. And so we're just reminding you to go to bit.ly.com slash Lakeys21 bitly.com slash lakeys21 or look in your show notes for the link and nominate some stuff for the lakeys in such categories as great Lakes science of the year great Lakes science communication of the year sandwich of the year donut of the year great lakes news story of the year all kind of fun awards that you can nominate for so do that and carolyn you're actually going to feature a nominee for great lakes outreach program of the year if i recall sure yep yeah. so um because today's guest is from the the university of minnesota um we are going Going to be featuring one of the nominees that is also based out of the University of Minnesota. It's the Sea Grant Great Lakes Aquaculture Collaborative, um, sometimes called GLAC. And so um, it's it's based it's 
headed by the group from Minnesota Sea Grant, but it has um, Sea Grant extension educators, science communicators, fishery biologists, economists, and aquaculture specialists from all of the Great Lakes states, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York. And um, they are trying to support an environmentally responsible, science-based, competitive, and sustainable aquaculture industry in the Great Lakes region. So sometimes people ask like, why is our Great Lakes Sea Grant programs involved in this? And it's, you know, it's aquaculture is um, a, a way to have production of food um, locally and things like that. There's a huge deficit with the amount of aquaculture that is imported from aquaculture grown fish or plants or invertebrates like shrimp or things like that um, that are grown in other countries uh, and then brought here to be consumed. So um, it's Good to explore the possibility, partially because aquaculture in the Great Lakes is very, very different than aquaculture along the coast, right? So it's nice to have this collaborative that is working together to try to figure out what works in the Great Lakes. So they have a bunch of um, different outreach available, some information if, you know, people want to start a particular business. There's marketing information, um, how to set things up, how to um, produce particular species. There's a whole bunch of good stuff. Um, so, yeah. No, it is really interesting. And I am sort of a, a point of information that I am sort of affiliated with. the. I've done work with them. Um with the aquaculture collaborative and and yeah aquaculture great lakes it's usually in tanks or in ponds right it's not like these huge net pins that are polluting out in the gulf or the lakes or whatever and so people are confused about that and it's a really interesting group of people who are really committed to trying to make a sustainable uh local seafood industry i think so yeah uh it is fascinating it's good but will it win a lakey tune in in probably december to find out <laughs> january who knows? Tune in to find out <laughs> as soon as we tell you that it's coming. Great. Well, I'm excited about today's interview. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more clovers. Uh, nope, not clovers. We'll talk clovers uh, with uh, Dr. Francie Cuthbert, uh, who is a, a plover biologist, among any other things. And uh, the reason that I point out that she's a plover biologist is so that I can introduce her with this. Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. We're joined today by uh, Dr. Francie Cuthbert. She is a distinguished teaching professor at the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology at the University of Minnesota. Francie, how are you today? Good, very good. And uh, Francie, you are in line right now for a ferry in Canada, is that right? That's right. How about you? Oh, we're wonderful. I'm always glad to talk piping plovers. I didn't know that I was until the first time I spoke piping plovers, actually just a couple hours ago. But now I know. I'm always excited because <laughs> these are cool birds. So you've been working on plovers for a while. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, my whole career. No kidding. And so what attracted you to the plovers exactly? Is it just they were there or was it an important issue or is there something about them? Well, actually, for my Ph.D. research, I um, studied uh, Caspian Tern behavior ecology on islands in uh, northern Lake Michigan and on one of the islands where I worked there was a pair of of uh, piping plovers that I used to see almost every day and I knew they were rare I started to read up a little bit and found out that really as far as the Great Lakes population almost nothing was known and so I just kind of carried this side interest 
And then some opportunities came up and I started working more intensively with, with plovers. So the, the plovers sort of stole you away from the turns? Yes, yes, they did. The plover really was an unexpected turn, right? Uh, 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 yes. <laughs> okay, thank you. Good night. Um, when you first started, that was kind of probably close to the peak of their endangerment or when they were really starting to become endangered, right? What um, what did you learn about plovers kind of earlier in your career that, that uh, in terms of why they're endangered or what some of the stresses were for the populations? Well, it, you know, it took a while to... Uh, sort things out because you're right i i started my interest before they were listed as an endangered population but um early on you know i knew that they were rare the numbers were low um and that they weren't changing and that at that time there was no management or conservation effort really in place what we know now is that they probably were greatly affected by a public recreation. Most of the sites where they nest are state parks, national parks, um, township parks. All, all these are beaches, uh, city parks. And with uh, it probably began, oh, in the around World War II, actually, the end of World War II, but in the 50s and 60s is when the numbers appeared to have really dropped. It is important to know that they were never what you would call common or abundant in the Great Lakes. They've always been, the numbers have always been uh, what biologists would say are, are small, were small. Is that largely because just their preferred habitat is um, not that common? Or um, is it that everywhere that they exist, they exist in relatively low numbers? Actually, the they, there are two other populations, one on the East Coast that has around 2,000 pairs, and one in the uh, uh, Great Plains and Prairie Canada, that um, that population is at about 2,000 plus pairs. And then the Great Lakes, it's not known for sure, but the estimate um, out there is maybe as many as 800 pairs, but I think it's really was smaller than that. And so the Great Lakes has tremendous shoreline, but the plovers are very particular about the habitat that they use, and that is not abundant. And so I would say they're limited by available habitat, and also they're sitting in between the two populations, and I think have um, served as a link uh, historically. So that may also be a reason that the numbers are smaller. That's cool. Has anyone any, done any kind of like genetic work to see if the populations are actually connected or observations of them, um, like tagging them or anything like that? Yes. Yeah, so there's several studies that have gone on. An earlier study looked at um, whether or not the three populations were genetically the same. And this was an older study. So the methods that we use now, um, of course, were not available. But um, that study documented that the Atlantic coast and the Great Plains were distinctive, distinctive to the point of being able to justify that they were subspecies. The Great Lakes birds are much more closely related to the Great Plains 
genetically, but they are not distinct. They're not distinct um, as a uh, subspecies. So how did you how did you used to do that research? I'm curious about that. So so my senior thesis now 20 years ago. Oh God, I'm getting older. I, I looked at two populations of fish, the silver jaw minnow. We were trying to figure out if they were different subspecies. And so I was counting fish scales every night. You know, most kids are out partying. I'm counting fish scales. What did, what did y'all what were like the older techniques to determine bird species? Was it you know looking kind of body morphometrics or what 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 kind of stuff did y'all do? The this study and I was not. I was not a co-author on this study, this initial one. It was done um, with, I think, blood samples, but also eggs. Um, and so these would have been un unhatched eggs or, you know, eggs that were not viable. Let's put it that way. But I, I should interject that right now I'm just starting a genetic study with a colleague at the University of Minnesota, uh, Shushma Reddy. And um, she works on population genetics. And so we're in the process of collecting a whole new set of samples to be able to look at, in a more sophisticated way, the relationship uh, among birds in these three populations, as well as answer some other questions. Um, so, that, you know, that's important to know. And we're just starting it. So I don't have any answers. But we're using blood. Um, of fecal samples and also collecting DNA from the the cheeks of birds as we're banding them. From the cheek, so is that like similar to when people are doing like a DNA test for their human that you like? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Really? And it's you, you know we use the the swabs that are you know that are the same except they're tiny that are being used to test for for COVID. These adorable little COVID swabs. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> so so then we're in this screwy situation, right? Where we have the Great Plain or the Great Lakes population is distinct from from the other one, and so it's in danger. So my understanding from talking with uh, Jillian Farkas in our our last bit was that um, the Great Lakes population is endangered, and the other populations are not. And during the summer, that makes sense, but over winter, they all commingle. That's is that is that right? That's correct. And they and during the winter. Um, all three populations are classified as threatened. Okay, so it's a roving classification scheme, depending on where. Huh. Right, you, and you, you mentioned—I don't want to, you know, send you off in a side direction—but you mentioned whether or not we, the birds uh, were tagged, or you know, what we knew about individuals and their behavior. And that's one of the unique things about the Great Lakes population is that we have been banding individuals since about 1993. And we have a tremendous a database on essentially all the birds. We ban all the chicks and all of the adults. And we don't miss many. So more than 90% of adults at the end of the season um, are, are individually marked. And the chicks, we rarely miss, um, miss chicks. So that gives us a lot of information. And so that's how we know where they go in the winter and whether or not birds are showing up in the other populations. So uh, that's another way we know um, that the Great Lakes is distinctive. That's crazy. So what do you, I mean, how, 
how do you manage that? Like, do you have like a huge force of volunteers that are helping you out? Um, or are, how does that, do you have students or how do you manage to be able to capture all of the chicks that are, are showing up? Okay, so, you know, we have about this past year, we had about 74 pairs, um, nesting pairs, and they lay, you know, typically about, they lay four eggs. Um, and not everybody is successful, so they're failures and so on. And so I have a banding team that operates out of the University of Michigan Biological Station, and they go to most of the sites um, and they band young. And before the young are available for banding, they, that's when they uh, capture uh, adults that are, are incubating. So far, we're able to keep up with all of it. <laughs> At some point, hopefully, the numbers will get high enough that you know we'll have to have a different strategy. We don't ban in Canada. There's a uh, colleagues who do that. We don't ban in New York. We have colleagues who do who do that, and same with Pennsylvania. But um, and we have a colleague who helps in Wisconsin. But otherwise, we've got done Illinois, Michigan, of course, Wisconsin. Um, Green Bay area and Ohio this year. It's a big job. And so my understanding is, is that we're at about 75 breeding pairs right now in the Great Lakes. Is that kind of the best estimate? Our estimate was 74 this year. And so what is, what is success then? So, so you've been working in plover restoration for, for quite some time and, and the numbers are, are moving up, if not always in a steady line. What, what, is there a target number? How do you, first of all, is there one? And, and then how do you decide what that might be? Um, the, the recovery goal is 150 pairs and that's 150 pairs in the u.s because of course we have a different policy than canada does and that's 100 pairs in michigan and 50 in the other states not, it's not specified how many per state this has to you know reach that number and remain there for five years as well as a target reproductive success, number of chicks fledged per pair at 1.5. And that's to be consistent for five years before the population can be considered uh, for delisting. So you said, where does that number come from? Well, the recovery plan, there've been several. One was done shortly after listing in the mid 1980s, and then another one in 2003. And the this was before really there was um, much information about the population and many of the you know sophisticated models that are available now. So it was, um, it was a target goal and it was not one that was based on any kind of a sophisticated analysis. I guess that's the best way to say it. But, but they think at 150 pair and then at, at one and a half um, chicks per, per breeding pair, that should lead to a, a stable or maybe even slightly growing population. Yes, that's, you know, that's, that's the goal. And of course, that's really the big challenge that we all worry about, because I think you know enough about plovers to know that they are very intensively managed. And so the question is, can they ever reach that target goal and then be independent or will they be what's referred to as conservation reliant species so that even though you hit that target 
they still are going to need some help. Not, not at the level that they're getting now, but something to maintain them, maintain the population. And and so right the the worry is that without like people out there you know like blocking off the nests on the beaches and you know counting all of them and and making sure that they're safe that that they could they could uh, just go right back to where they were I guess yeah yes or you know have greater ups and downs and and have certain events that could could lead them to really drop in number oh right a low year combined with some sort of disastrous event it's not very resilient right yep yeah so how do we get how do we get there how do we get to 150 breeding pairs what what needs to happen um in order to to get to that status ongoing management at at all of the nest sites include an exclosure that goes over the nest which is like a wire cage with openings big enough for the, the adults to go through and sit on the nest but um most mammalian, you know, ground predators cannot get through there um, because the holes are, you know, smaller. And then um, covering on the top to keep out aerial predators, crows, gulls, merlins, a small falcon, um, great horned owl, for example. Hmm. Um, and um, the other thing is that we close off areas and that's done with what we call psychological fencing it's not you know it's it's literally posts typically metal posts with signs that say do not enter please don't you know go in to this nesting site and then there's twine that's around the these posts and so this is where we estimate the the size of the territory is and will be but that can be moved if they happen to move their chicks and we need to make a bigger area but that's good for the eggs the exposure but as soon as they hatch within can be just a few hours the adults lead the chicks out of that fenced in the the exposure and then they're in the big outside world which can be very unpredictable and sometimes quite cruel so to speak yes it can Yes, it can. So that's, you know, that's the basic thing that we do. But we also have monitors associated with all of the nesting sites. And in most cases, these monitors are checking every single day. And some are literally just like staying right there at the nest site. And they're, you know, watching to make sure that they're not bothered, you know, disturbed by humans. They're not people with dogs off leash, that there are not issues going on that they can they can help correct or prevent and two of our urban big urban sites um, in the U.S. outside of Toledo at Maumee Bay and in um, at uh, Montrose Beach in Chicago they have you know citizen scientists and citizen volunteers that are very vigilant and that are there you know basically dawn to dusk and this is made, you know, I think that's, I don't think, I know that's why those nests have been successful because they, they are watching all the time for threats. These are, and of course, there are a lot of other types of management. We've done some habitat restoration um, that ha that's attracted birds. Um, we have uh some, the public beaches, there are um, law enforcement 
that that are involved that can help with different issues. You know, all these are are really important factors. And another one that's building more and more is increasing public support. The the public is learning about uh, piping plovers, and you are helping that you know to happen with this podcast. But it really came in a big way with the two um, with the Chicago nest. Yes, with Monty and Rose. So I just realized why they're named that if they're at the Montrose Beach, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, and then and then Ohio. So there were a tremendous number of stories that have come out, you know, on the radio and, and the new newspapers um, and just articles that people have written in in the magazines. And, and so all of this gets the public involved and interested. I wanted to ask a slightly different question because you're talking about the public and really the public helping with conservation and stuff like that. But I see that you have also worked on um, biology and management of double-crested cormorants. Um, And so I wanted to ask a little bit about that because in, you know, when I grew up uh, near Lake Erie and there was a lot of, you know, the the cormorants are, the, the population numbers are too high, the population numbers are too low, um, they're eating, and there's been a lot of concern about them, you know, eating round gobies. So I, I come from um, an invertebrate background, but more invertebrates feeding fish. Um, and so I've thought a lot about round gobies and contaminants, and if they're what's available, and then the cormorants eat them, then there can be problems. So can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, like, can we contrast a little bit the the public support for the piping plovers, which I learned about, uh, you know, versus the way the public has engaged with what happens with cormorants at all? I know that's a whole other thing, but maybe we could just talk about it briefly. Actually, it 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 may be a, a whole different thing, but it's a very interesting comparison to look at the two and how the public has responded, how agencies have responded. You know, it's a it's a huge challenge you've outlined what the issue is. It's, it's basically um, overconsumption of fish. That, that's what they are perceived to do so that they're competing, um, competing with anglers. The other is uh, destruction of vegetation. People don't like to see the fact that you know, they kill trees and, and, and um, islands and so on can change from being a treed island to one that's, that's barren. The pressure that was put on government agencies was overwhelming. There were many biologists across the Great Lakes region who that's all they did was deal with cormorant issues. Government agencies are in a position to um, make the public happy and try and figure out how to do that and um, how to manage um, a resource well. The Cormorant, you know, was a was a challenge, and plovers are also a challenge, but in a different way. And if you look at the two species, piping plovers are small, they're cute, they're not abundant, and the public has a general sense of too many. When there are too many of anything, it can be, you know, too many black flies. It can be too many cormorants. It can be too many alewives, you know, once a certain level is reached, the public says, no, too much. We don't, 
we don't want that. We don't want that number anymore. And that's when pressure gets put on the agencies. Cormorants are not considered cute. I think they're fascinating, you know, biologically and just their, their whole um, morphology. Um, but that doesn't come across to the public. And so this is, you know, another reason there's not been support for cormorants um, or many people have been supporting them. So that's interesting. One of the things, so I remember reading a paper, oh, this was a while ago because I was still in grad school. It's probably, probably 10, 15 years, uh, (laughs) five or 10 years ago at this point. Um, Looking at media. So one of the things I do is I I analyze media coverage of environmental controversies. And so there's a paper I wasn't a part of. um, And the, the title of the paper, I still remember this was from victim to perpetrator. Uh, and it was talked about news coverage of cormorants and how over time, um, you know, cormorants were perceived as like, you know, victims at first, like in the 19, what, 70s or whatever, maybe early 80s. And then over time, the coverage of them slowly moved and there was a lot more use of sort of that perpetrator framing or the risks from corporate or cormorant framing. And so that's just the story you're telling there. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And they were um, actually on endangered lists. Um, in several places. They were on the, the Wisconsin endangered species list, if you can believe that. And, and they actually, Wisconsin put up um, like nesting towers, artificial nest sites to try and attract them. I can't tell you the exact year, but I think that could have been, could have been in the early 70s. Well, hopefully one day we'll be having this conversation about piping clovers. This, they're, they're unlikely to be perpetrators, but maybe they'll be so plentiful that... Uh... Uh, people are not worried about them anymore. Well, uh, Dr. Francie Cuthbert, this is really interesting, but this is actually not why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask you two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? Oh, a great sandwich for lunch. So if so, now you're at the University of Minnesota. Is that in Duluth? Where's the University of Minnesota? It's in. No, that's um, well. The University of Minnesota system has campuses a number of places. I'm on the Twin Cities campus, so that's Minneapolis, St. Paul. Okay, perfect. Duluth is where Minnesota Sea Grant is based out of. That's what it is. Okay, Minneapolis, good. Going to be a broader selection there. So when I go to Minneapolis and I want to get a really great sandwich for lunch, where should I go? Well, I would say uh, one place is to go to uh, Broder's Deli, um, which is um, at Fiftieth um, and Penn, and um, they have they have a great choice of sandwiches. That's that's my first choice. There we go. I'm going, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes, which uh, you listener can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com/slash forty four zero because this is episode forty. And the second question is this. So we spend a lot of time talking to people about the Great Lakes and what a wonderful place they are. But but what is special about the Great Lakes to you? Is there like a special place or a special memory about the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I can say that I have spent a very long time, you know, throughout my career and childhood and so on in the Great Lakes region. And I would say, you know, the islands of northern Lake Michigan are totally amazing and um uh the my favorite island is high island um which is where i first saw plovers but it's uninhabited it's got spectacular high dunes um according to botanists it has 
uh, some of the most original kind of pristine vegetation and and um, coastal shore ecosystem features of of anywhere um, in the Great Lakes. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Well, Dr. Uh, Francie Cuthbert, a distinguished teaching professor at the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology at the University of Minnesota. Where can people go to find out more about your work or about the piping plover? Is there a website or social media? What works? Um, Yes. So we we have a blog site and we have a a Facebook page that has, they're both full of lots of information. The Facebook is like an update of what's going on during the winter, during the summer. The blog site has a lot of information on how we um, uh, choose band combos and how to recognize and report them. So more, you know, factual information. So the great, the easiest way to find these is GLPIPL, either Facebook or blog. And I can send you those, I can send you those links. GLPIPL. Fantastic. And we will put that um, in our show notes so that you can go straight there. And uh, with that, uh, Dr. Francie Guthbert, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Well, thanks. Thanks for your support for Plovers and sharing information with the public. It's always fun to talk plovers. Always fun to talk plovers. Yeah, I mean, um, being perfectly honest, I'm not a birder, and I like plovers because they're cute. They're cute. Our last episode, which was also plovers, so you don't know this because we just recorded it a couple minutes ago, um, and it was just me. But uh, the the title is "Cotton Balls with Toothpick Legs," um, and that is basically what they are, especially when they're young. Right, and now I'm thinking, like, if you had a, a a title about what a cormorant is, it would not be cotton balls with toothpicks. <laughs> no, it would not be. Uh, there's actually a highly offensive name for them in the South. I won't, I won't, I mean, it's like, it offends me and I'm pretty hard to offend. Um, but uh, yes, yes. Uh, people are not fans of cormorants, but it's interesting because it did, t- I forgot about that paper that I read. I actually, we're probably not supposed to say this, but I might've reviewed it um, for publication. And so that's part of why it's stuck in my mind. But uh, it was a good paper. Right. Yeah. And and I mean, like, I lived through that because when I started um, my career, it was like, oh, you know, cormorants are in trouble. We need to look after them. And then I would literally like we would drive a boat by Middle Sister Island and it was just covered like all the trees were gone. So they what what do they do to the trees? Is it they, they don't eat them? What is it? They, poop? they go to the bathroom. Yes, yep. Yep. <laughs> it was completely covered. And then, you know, like we'd be out in the middle and there's like these islands in the middle of Western Lake Erie and uh, there's like a house and then they just have a random like gunshot, like, and it's not an actual gunshot. It's just a loud noise to scare the cormorants away. But we're just sampling, you know, like gathering, whatever. And then all of a sudden you hear boom and you're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? So, yeah, yeah. Well, you're assuming it wasn't an actual gunshot. (laughs) It was too regular, but yeah, no, but yeah, anyway. This this is not an episode about Carolyn's weird adventures sampling Lake Erie. So no, however, <laughs> I'm writing this down. So you need to find your old sampling buddies, right? Because there's no relationship like fieldwork relationship for better and worse. And uh, one day we will have the episode about Carolyn's adventures uh, sampling Lake Erie. Yeah, you. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I... <laughs> 
okay, sounds good. Well, maybe we'll get out the voice disguising technology then and have it just, uh, we'll invite a random stranger. Yeah, yeah. Special guest biologist. Yep. All right, great. Um, No, that was interesting. Cormorant stuff was interesting. um, And I had not, yeah, I hadn't thought about that stuff in forever. Plus, Team Sandwich grows by one more. All in all, a successful interview. Plus, she was on a boat. We always like to interview people on a boat. Should have asked about the the horn. I don't think it would have gone the same, though. No, probably not. Yeah. Great. Um, Good. Well, in this highly organized fashion, um, Carolyn, would you like to read the credits while I play the music under the credits? And find the link? Sure. Yeah, no, no, no. So behind the scenes here, if this stays in, Quinn, it's your call. Uh, Francie was supposed to appear on the last episode, but but because she's traveling and in Canada, she uh, uh, was unreachable because I don't know if they don't have cell phones yet in Canada or whatever the deal is. Oh, be quiet. But she couldn't make it. But then she texted me and said, hey, I'm, you know, sorry, but I'm free now. Do you want to talk plovers? And the answer is yes. I always want to talk plovers. So uh, we're having this uh, emergency episode a little bit less organized than usual. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> It's an impressive level of lack of organization. And so as I fill the time, Carolyn is slowly opening up the thing. Are you ready? No, I got it. Good to go. Let's do it starting now. Teach Me Above the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do at I-I-S-E-A-G-R-A-N-T dot org and at I-L-I-N Sea Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Reedy Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and I encourage you to check her out at inspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com. Gmail.com! Or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. 4474-4474. You can also follow the show at Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Thanks for listening and keep grading those links. <laughs>